It has long been considered a tactic of last resort, a final move to strike a killer blow against an enemy vessel, to take your own ship and use it as a weapon to ram an enemy. In the earliest days of naval warfare, ramming was the only truly effective way to sink an enemy vessel, and ancient cultures such as the Greeks designed their ships with this in mind. However, after the invention of gunpowder and cannons, the idea of ramming an enemy ship became almost suicidal. But in the second half of the 19th century, the world's navies were forced to confront the possibility that ramming would make a comeback as a viable tactic after a decisive battle that took place off the island of Lissa in the Adriatic Sea, 1866. It was an engagement that demonstrated how traditional naval warfare was being turned on its head thanks to new technologies that forced incredibly brave naval commanders to revert to the ancient tactic of ramming enemy ships. In today's episode, we will examine this incredible dramatic battle and the impact it had on naval warfare forevermore. Welcome to Wars of the World. In the opening decades of the 19th century, the great sailing ships of the imperial powers of Europe would reach the zenith of their might and influence upon the world stage. These were more than just tools of war. They expressed the grandeur and power of their respective nations, becoming both wooden works of art and mobile gun platforms to take the fight anywhere on the world's oceans. Bigger almost always meant better, and as such, every nation scrambled to build the biggest warship with the most number of guns. The intent is that when two opposing fleets meet one another, they form up in lines and bombard one another with the side having the most number of guns, having the best chance of destroying the other first. This is how naval battles were generally fought up until October 21st, 1805, when a British fleet under the command of Admiral Horatio Nelson, engaged and overwhelmingly defeated a superior French and Spanish force at the Battle of Trafalgar. Key to this success was Nelson disregarding the old rulebook and instead forming up an opposing line of ships, he arranged his fleet into columns to smash through enemy lines and encircle them in sections where they could be destroyed. The Battle of Trafalgar may have been fought with traditional ships of the line, but it demonstrated that naval warfare in the future was to become a less clumsy affair, with tactics and technology now playing a significantly greater role. Two innovations especially would have a profound impact on naval doctrine. On land, the Industrial Revolution was kicking into gear, and key to its blossoming was the application of steam engines to propel carts, trains, and even small canal boats. When looking at the naval application of steam engines, admirals were a little skeptical of their use at sea until July 1813, when engineer Robert White 
converted a former French sailing vessel to steam power and steamed from Yarmouth to Leeds. As steam engines became more powerful and more reliable, navies the world over were soon quick to realize their potential. Within two years of Wright's journey, the United States introduced the first steam warship in the world, the Demolgos, which was intended to protect New York from the Royal Navy, and other navies soon followed suit. Unlike the powerful, smoky warships of a century later, these early steam-powered warships still heavily relied on their sails for much of their time at sea, only using their steam engines when the wind was low or speed was needed. At the same time, naval engineers were also looking to address a growing threat to warships in the form of explosive and incendiary shells. Instead of traditional solid cannonballs, these new weapons instead featured centers packed with gunpowder that would be ignited by a fuse which would be lit upon firing. These weapons greatly increased the damage that could be inflicted upon a wooden sailing ship, this being proven by Russian warships decimating an Ottoman fleet in 1853, and it became a matter of urgency to effect a counter to these new weapons. Naval engineers had already begun experimenting with replacing much of, if not all, of a vessel's hull with iron instead of wood, and the steam engines helped to address the problem of the extra weight that would otherwise slow the ship down and make it vulnerable. Again, the United States was quick to capitalize on the potential of this new technology and produced the first iron warship, the USS Michigan, in 1843 while Britain and France used floating gun batteries encased in iron against the Russians during the Crimean War. Steam-powered versions of these batteries were only capable of four knots and had a short range, meaning they had to be towed into battle. The first truly ocean-going warship with steam engines and iron armor was the French warship Gloire, launched in 1859. This truly revolutionary warship featured a wooden hull designed along traditional lines, but was clad in iron plates 4.5 inches thick, hence the designation ironclad. Gloire was armed with 36 6.4-inch guns and could be propelled by a steam engine that drove a single screw propeller, which took it to a speed of 13 knots. These factors made the Gloire the most formidable warship of its day and sparked an arms race amongst all the great naval powers to convert or build more ironclad warships. However, in their haste, they neglected to address one simple fact. No one yet had a truly effective way of sinking an enemy ironclad. This was spectacularly demonstrated in the first ironclad versus ironclad battle on March 9th of 1862, during the American Civil War. The Union warship Monitor and the Confederate ship Virginia expended nearly their entire ammunition stocks trying to sink one another, before both ships resorted to attempting to ram the other without success. The results of the battle guaranteed that all future warships would be armored to some degree, but this only exacerbated the problem of guns being unable to destroy enemy fleets. Both sides fighting to a draw is not a victory and this left many a commander the world over, pondering the possibility that they too might have to use their own ship as a weapon. A new generation of warships began to feature rams in their design, should they ever find themselves in such a desperate situation, 
but their effectiveness was still open to debate. But that would very soon change. In the 19th century, the map of Europe was fluctuating as territories were gained and lost in a myriad of conflicts, wars, and political turmoil. On the Italian peninsula, smaller nations and territories occupied by foreign powers, such as the Austrian Empire, saw a surge of feelings of joint brotherhood and Italian nationalism, and thus there was a drive to unify them under the Kingdom of Italy. Through either rebellion or alliance, the Kingdom of Italy was formally unified into a single entity on March 17, 1861. But there was still territory held onto by the Austrians, which the new Italian state coveted. In June of 1866, war broke out between the Austrian Empire and the neighboring Kingdom of Prussia, ruled by Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck approached the new Italy's first king, Victor Emmanuel II, with an offer to cede the Austrian-held territory of Veneto to Italy if Italy declared war on Austria. Emmanuel II agreed, and on June 23, 1866, a week after the start of hostilities between Austria and Prussia, Italian troops marched on Veneto. On the naval front, despite being barely out of the cradle, the new Italian navy had inherited a substantial force of warships with which to threaten Austria's own navy, including almost double the number of ironclads. Under the command of Count Carlo de Persano, an Italian fleet comprising of 12 ironclads and 17 unarmored support vessels set sail for the Austrian-held island of Lissa in the Adriatic Sea, off the coast of present-day Croatia, to claim it for Italy and use as a base for future operations against the Austrians. Sailing to stop them was an Austrian fleet under the command of Contra-Admiral Wilhelm von Teketov that comprised just seven ironclads and 11 unarmored support vessels. The Italians seemed to have a huge advantage on paper, and indeed there was understandable trepidation about the upcoming battle amongst the Austrian sailors. However, in reality, things were not so clear-cut for Persano's fleet. Many of the Italian ships and their crews were inherited from the old Italian nations, and at times there was little uniformity in how the ships operated. This was only made worse by divisional commanders, who were at times political rivals, vying for influence in the new Italian court, and Persano was not someone who could completely manage such an environment. As such, the events that occurred next seem almost comedic in their absurdity. Building up to the battle, on July 20th, 1866, both sides formed their warships up into three groups, with the Austrians focusing all their ironclads into the first, while the second group featured six all-wooden warships, which were looking incredibly vulnerable in the face of the Italian ironclads, and the remainder reforming into a third group. Persano, meanwhile, distributed all his ironclads amongst all three Italian groups, where they acted as the main force in each, supported by a number of unarmored ships. As Persano's fleet approached Lissa, he learned that the Austrian force was at sea, looking to stop them, and so he made the decision to cancel the landings, and instead engage the Austrian ships. He reorganized his force into a line abreast formation that would allow them to scour large areas of ocean to locate the Austrians. 
But then, perplexingly, he rescinded the order and ordered his ships to instead form up line ahead. Not only did this put all his ships into columns, reducing their chances of locating the Austrian fleet, but in the age before wireless communications, it caused widespread confusion amongst the Italian captains. Persano then decided to change his flagship from Raid Italia to the Affondator, which had been held off away from the three main Italian groups. Groups two and three slowed to allow boats to be lowered for him to transfer his flag, but the first group failed to receive the order and continued on, opening a hole in the Italian force between groups one and two. As if this were not problematic enough, not every Italian ship received word that a fondator was now the flagship, and so were still looking to the Reed Italia for signs of what to do as the Austrians attacked, squeezing into the gap between groups one and two. Austria's lead group of ironclads engaged the first Italian group at close ranges, while the confused second and third Italian groups milled around, waiting for the Reed Italia to give orders that would never come. However, as was feared by many in naval circles, the ironclads on both sides were unable to do any serious damage to the other, which should have given the Italians time to properly organize themselves, but they failed to do so, allowing the Austrian forces to start dictating the battle. The Austrian ironclads broke off into two further groups, each attacking the first and second Italian groups, while the unarmored second group attacked the remaining Italian ships at the rear of their lines. While his men were engaged in close quarter battles with the Austrians, Persano remained aboard his new flagship at a safe distance, at times a non-entity in the battle that was taking place. Despite the lack of organization on the part of the Italian fleet, the sheer weight of numbers on the Italian side meant that as the battle waged, it was slowly turning in the Italians' favor. While the ironclads stubbornly refused to sink, the Italian shells still caused extensive damage to rigging, gun mounts, and any exposed crew on the deck, while the unarmored ships of both sides only served to prove while they were no longer effective as the full horror of combat was unleashed upon them. However, once again, the Italians failed to capitalize on this, and in the chaos of the engagements, their lines began to collapse. The Austrians took advantage of this, and encircled smaller groups of Italian ships, pummeling them with shellfire, and thus negating the Italian numerical advantage. Persano now decided to finally take action, and ordered his ship, the Affondator, into action. But rather than using it to engage another ironclad, he instead picked a softer target in the form of the old and unarmored Austrian ship of the line, Kaiser. Persano decided to ram the Kaiser with his newer warship, but miscalculated his attack, allowing the Kaiser to evade him. Seeing his commander attempt such an attack, the captain of the Italian ironclad, Redir Portagolo, carried out his own ramming attack. But at the last second, the captain of the Kaiser turned his ship and instead counter-rammed the Italian vessel. The Kaiser inflicted enormous damage, but was itself heavily damaged being an unarmored ship plowing into an ironclad. Both ships limped away from each other, very much out of the battle. Ramming was now on the Austrian leadership's mind, and their flagship, the Erzherzog Ferdinand Max, turned towards the Reed Italia and another Italian ship, the Palestro, raking them with gunfire before carrying out three rammings. 
crashing into the former Italian flagship, they succeeded in tearing an 18-foot hole below its waterline, causing it to sink in minutes, while ramming the Palestro destroyed its masts and set it on fire. Another Italian ship, the Ancona, scrambled to bring her guns to bear on the Austrian flagship to avenge her comrades, but in the haste to ready her guns, the crew forgot to load the shells, and so the guns discharged clouds of gunpowder smoke and nothing else. As the battle was drawing to a close, the still badly damaged Kaiser was again in close range with Passando's Affondator, but the Italian commander had had enough and signaled his ships to break off. Italy's losses in this battle came to 660 casualties and two ironclads sunk, compared to Austria's 176, and added to this, of course, was the Austrians preventing the Italians from capturing the island. Despite the Austrian victory in the battle, it did little to affect events on land, and by the end of the year, Veneto would become part of the new unified Italy, albeit thanks to Prussian victory in the conflict. However, the world over viewed the battle as a stark warning of the growing importance of the current generation of guns, equipping the world's fleets in the face of new armored warships. With no immediate solution to the gun problem available, there was a new appreciation for the effectiveness of ramming enemy ships, now that the guns that had previously made it suicidal had been nullified. Soon, naval planners began toying with the idea of tailoring ships to be better effective at punching through the side of an enemy ship's hull, and many nations initiated a crash program to fit their existing ships with rams, protruding several feet from the main hull beneath the waterline. These protrusions allowed captains to punch a hole in an enemy ship while protecting their own ship's main hull from the full force of the impact. Such was the confidence in the ram that captains soon began viewing them as their main weapon in ship-to-ship -ship combat, with guns being relegated to attacking enemy merchant shipping or what few unarmored warships remained in service as the century went on. But there were some admirals, particularly in Britain, that wanted to go a step further and build dedicated ram ships. Ram ships and boats were not new, having seen some service in the American Civil War, but now they were taking on a new importance unlike ever before. Typifying this newfound belief in the ram ship was the British warship HMS Hotspur, which was launched a mere four years after the Battle of Lyssa. Hotspur was designed to accompany the main fleet on deployments, and in battle, would use its 10-foot-long reinforced ram to impale high-priority targets, such as the enemy's flagship. Another innovation that was equipping warships by this time was the powered gun turret, which allowed warships to target enemy vessels with a much wider arc of fire, rather than having to present the side of the ship towards a target to bring the guns to bear. Hotspur was intended to have a turret, but it was feared that the violence of ramming an enemy ship might damage the mechanism used for rotation. And so, as an alternative, a cupola was mounted on the main deck with four firing ports through which the 12-inch gun could be positioned and fired in one of four different directions. None of these ports were actually aligned to the forward position, meaning the Hotspur couldn't fire at the target it was aiming to ram, the gun instead being used to fend off any escort vessel, trying to protect the ram's intended victim. 
Upon entering service, Hotspur was viewed with great pride by the British Admiralty and seen as something of a superweapon. That pride would prove short-lived. Hotspur's reciprocating steam engines proved underpowered, and as such, the vessel's top speed fell below expectations and was woefully insufficient to allow it to ram any envisioned enemy ship, maneuvering at full power with any chance of success. Equally, being poorly armed meant Hotspur had little value as a traditional warship and spent much of its life either in reserve or acting as a guardship for ports in Wales and later Bermuda. Nevertheless, the new confidence in the naval ram as a concept remained high, reinforced by the Battle of Ikiki, where a Peruvian ironclad sank the Chilean warship Esmeralda after twice ramming it during the course of a four-hour battle. The fact that the Esmeralda was a wooden corvette and not an ironclad herself was seen as immaterial. The ram was truly believed to be the future, and occupied a brief moment of stardom in popular culture. The famous fictional warship, Thunderchild, from H.G. Wells' science fiction classic War of the Worlds, the book from which this channel draws its parallel name from, was an ironclad torpedo ram, and in a suicidal final attack, destroys three Martian fighting machines. In the novel, it serves as a demonstration of Great Britain's ultimate superweapon finally being overcome by the Martian invaders. Despite the obsession with equipping warships with rams after Lyssa, they would not see any significant use in the various conflicts that would spark up through the remainder of the 19th century. However, this is not to say that the rams didn't chalk up a number of victims. Unlike cannons, which can be disarmed, the ram was a weapon that was always ready to be used, and this led to a number of tragic accidents. The arrival of the 1890s would see a string of shocking disasters, where the inclusion of warships equipped with rams either exacerbated the results of an accidental collision, or even caused it in the first place. On March 17th, 1891, the British warship HMS Anson, equipped with a ram, was anchored in Gibraltar Harbour as the passenger ship SS Utopia steamed into dock. The passenger ship was hit by strong winds and was pushed towards the bow of the Anson, where the warship's ram tore a gaping hole in its hull. Within 20 minutes, the Utopia had sank, and of the 880 souls on board, 562 perished. Eerily foreshadowing the Titanic disaster, it was found later that the ship wasn't carrying enough lifeboats for all those on board. The following year, on July 7, 1892, the French battleship Oche found itself the subject of interest for the passengers and crew of a 1,200-ton French mail ship. The captain of the mail ship decided to give the passengers and crew a chance to see one of their nation's newest and mightiest warships up close, but he would get too close, and the Osh's ram would cut the mail ship in two halves. A Herculean effort by the French battleship's crew to secure the two sections of the ship to their own vessel, delaying them from sinking and buying time, no doubt saved many lives, but 107 people were killed in the collision. Less than a year after that, the ram would claim probably its most well-known victim in the form of HMS Victoria. On June 22, 1893, 
The 11,200-ton battleship was sailing off the coast of northern Lebanon in the company of the 10,800-ton battleship Camperdown. Both vessels were less than 10 years old and were among some of the most modern and expensive warships of their day. Commanded by Vice Admiral Sir George Tryon, the ships were part of a force sailing perilously close to one another under his strict orders, and being an absolute authoritarian, the captains always waited for Tryon's instructions to change direction. Those instructions never came in time, and Camperdown's ram penetrated nine feet into Victoria's hull, well below the waterline, causing seawater to flood the vessel. In a desperate move to save his ship, Tryon ordered the Victoria to head for shore some five miles away in order to breach the battleship, but it would prove in vain. Within eight minutes, the foredeck had sunk so low that the propellers at the stern were now protruding out of the water, leaving the ship unable to move. Despite desperate attempts to save the ship, 13 minutes after the collision, the battleship capsized and was rocked by internal explosions as seawater filled the ship's boilers. 358 men, over half the crew of the Victoria, including Vice Admiral Tryon, were killed. But it could have been so much worse. Camperdown did not come off unscathed, and her ram was torn off her forward hull, ripping a hole through which water quickly flooded. She too would eventually see her foredeck drop to sea level, until her crew were able to control the flooding and limp to a nearby port. Other warships sailing with the two battleships only narrowly avoided colliding with them after Victoria had been impaled. The 12,790-ton HMS Nile, missing Victoria by a nerve-breaking 100 yards. While it is likely that all three of these collisions would have happened anyway, there can be little doubt that the inclusion of the rams dramatically increased damage sustained during them, and as such, increased the death toll. The real tragedy of it all is that by this time, while many captains and admirals were still clinging onto the idea of a ram, it was already evident that the fad of ramming enemy ships had now passed. In the 1870s, the traditional naval cannons were slowly being replaced by breech-loading artillery pieces, with rifle barrels that increased both accuracy and range. This, along with increases in caliber and new propellants, meant that guns were, once again, capable of penetrating even the most heavily armored warships at very long ranges. This made the concept of ramming a suicidal undertaking, with the ramming ship likely being saturated by high explosive shells and sunk before it got anywhere near to its target. Given the chance of more accidental sinkings, the rams were finally being taken off warships by the turn of the century. However, one unexpected side effect of their fitting was that they tended to make ships slightly faster. As a result, most warships and civilian ships up to this very day have some kind of protrusion at the bow, although nowhere anywhere near the length or strength of a true ram. And there you have the story of the Battle of Lyssa, and the dawn and fall of the ram. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.